You best be ready. We are in the book of Exodus, and my name is Thomas, and we haven't met yet. If you are new to Calvary, you feel like you're sticking out like a sore thumb, you are not, my friend. You are coming into the community that desires to know you, to be known, to love on you, your family, marriage, whatever that is. We want to be a community of people that seek the Lord together, that are known together. So we are so thankful that you are here today. And as a community, what we do on Sundays is we want to know God in a bigger, grander way. That as our vision of God grows bigger and bigger and bigger, understanding who he is, then our trust in God grows deeper and deeper and deeper that into God that despite our season, despite our circumstance, our week, wherever we're at, we know who God is and that he can be trusted. And we do that as we study the Bible because you don't want simply to know the God that the pastor up front imagines him to be or thinks he should be. And you don't want the God that you imagine him to be or think he should be. But we want God as he really is, as he has revealed himself to be through his whole scriptures. And so we're in an Old Testament book called Exodus, which is the historical account of the God of redemption and saving to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt and bring them to a place of promise. And if you've been here for the last eight weeks, we have kind of journeyed into into Egypt, seen all of the slavery, seen the bondage, seen the people's cry. We've met a God who hears and sees and knows his people and has come down and delivered them out of bondage and has brought them through the, the famous Red Sea story. And now he has brought them into the wilderness. We saw their grumblings last week. But this morning, we're going to begin a two-part on the law of God at Sinai. Now, I know you were hoping we were going to talk about the law of God today. You're like, that's why I brought all my friends and my neighbors and my family. No, if you brought people today, you're like, oh man, I should have brought them last week, not this week with the law of God. But here's a great thing. Here's why it's actually a really good day. It's because we have so much confusion about what the law of God is. We, we have some misunderstandings of what the law of God does. And so we want to see from the story of Exodus, where does the law of God come from and what's it for? Where does it come from and what's it for? Because we see that the people are coming to Sinai as God promised to Moses to bring them there. That when, when God met Moses out in the wilderness, he told them, this will be a sign to you that I am faithful and trustworthy. That when we depart Egypt, I will bring the people back to this place. And here they come back to the place that God had promised Moses. And here's where we see the laws of God, the instructions of God, the ways of God revealed to Moses and taught to the people of Israel of how they are to live. And so let's take a look at it from Exodus chapter 19. So grab your Bibles, one in front of you on your phone, Exodus 19. And here's the big idea for today. That if we could take the whole sermon and just kind of put it into one sentence, it would be this. That God's covenant flows from grace for our good and his glory. That the covenant of God, everything that we're going to see next week, we're going to get into the specifics of this covenant. Specifically the ten statements, ten commandments. But it flows from grace for our good and his glory. So let's look at this. Exodus 19. This is the journey continuing. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim, which is where we left them last week, 
and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, just as God promised. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Just pause right there in verse 4. That you have seen what I've done to the Egyptians. You've seen my power and you've seen my grace towards you. And I have brought you out of slavery as on eagles' wings we soared out of there. So before we get into any of the law, we see that God affirms his grace. That God has been the primary actor so far. That Israel didn't get out of Egypt because of their own might, their own strengths, their own works. It was simply that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, whom he set his affections on and said, I will be faithful to my people. And by grace alone, he brings them out of bondage. It's been a one-sided relationship. All Israel has to do so far is follow God. By faith, they follow his gracious provision of rescue. And now we're about to see what is their part in the relationship. But first and foremost, before we ever receive the law, we receive God's grace. Unmerited, undeserved grace to bring us out of a place of bondage. And says to bring us to a place of promise. I have bore you on Ingalls' wings, he says, that you would be brought to myself. That our tagline has been this, that we would be brought from a place of bondage to a place of promise. But before we think of the place of promise being a land, we must first understand that a place of promise is primarily a person. That a place of promise is actually in relationship. The place is in a relational place with God Almighty, that that is the promised place to be in relationship with God. Before there's a settled land, before things have settled down, before they have houses and neighborhoods and livestock settled into their fields, the promised place that God first brings them to is himself, is himself. This will be your rest in relationship with me. This will be your identity in relationship with me. This is the fulfillment of promise that you would continue to be in relationship with me. I brought you to myself that we would have this relationship. And then now he speaks. You've seen what I've done. You've seen how I've brought you to myself, this place, this person of promise. Now let me show you, reveal to you this law. My teachings, my instructions. And so, first and foremost, one of our misunderstandings we have to clear up is God's law is given, not so that we can do it in order to become his children. It is given because we are his children. You get that? That before the law ever shows up in Israel's history, he has already called them his own. He has already called Abraham. He's already called a family. He's already identified them as Israel. He's told them they're his children. And I've brought you out of bondage. And now I'm going to reveal to you this law, this instruction, my ways, this teachings. Why? Because I want to shape the family that we are. I want to shape who you are as children. I want to lead you in a family value and ethic. This is the constitution of sorts for the nation 
of Israel. But all of the covenant, all of the covenant flows from grace. Grace first. Grace first. Verse 5. Now, therefore, in response to grace, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So this is their role. That they're going to have to obey, follow, listen to his instruction. They're going to have to obey and follow his voice, keeping these things. Family matters. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. This is just God saying, I'm the king of my domain. The world is my domain. I'm the king of it. And I own everything. And as a king has storehouses of wealth, storehouses of jewelry, storehouses of jewels, storehouses of, of fancy cars or whatever, this king says, of all the possessions I have, which is everything, you, Israel, will be a treasured possession. Imagine perhaps your own wealth or even think about the monies that you have. If it was, what's your treasured possession? You might take me to your room, your closet, open up a jewelry box and show me your grandmother's ring. Perhaps it's not the most valuable. Perhaps your engagement ring or your wedding band is far more valuable than this one. But isn't it a treasured possession? Its place, its unique place in your life makes it a treasured possession. Now, it's, it's easy to think, well, gosh, Israel must be the biggest and the strongest and the best. They're the smartest. That's why God chose them. No, not at all. God loves the whole world. They're chosen as a treasured possession for a unique purpose. Deuteronomy 7 tells us, that actually God is reminding his people Israel, says, don't forget that I set my affections on you, not because you are more numerous. In fact, you're the least. Not because you're the strongest. In fact, you're probably the weakest. But I, I set my affections on you because I'm being faithful to the covenant that I promised to Abraham. I'm being faithful and truthful to the things that I've said. And so I've called you out of Egypt because you're going to be a treasured possession. If you obey my voice and follow my teachings, instructions, you will be this treasured possession, a unique nation amongst all nations. And this goes back and speaks to the covenant, that Israel was to be blessed in order to be what? A blessing. And they were not a container of God's blessing, like, and these are my favorites. No, they're, they're supposed to be a conduit, that God would bless them, and then through them, all the nations of the world would experience God's blessing. God's heart is for all peoples and all nations, and he's choosing to do it here through Israel. And so he says, you're going to be my treasured possession. I'm going to bless you. And in verse 6, check this out. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These two roles, kingdom of priests and holy nation. Now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say a kingdom with priests. See that? It says that you will be a kingdom of priests. And the whole kingdom, all of Israel, will hold this ideal of being a priest. The kingdom itself will be a kingdom of priests. Every nation has kingdom with priests. You're going to be a kingdom of priests because you're going to be a holy nation. Holy speaks to not only its moral purity, as we see, as we think, but its otherness, that it's set apart. Its distinctness is what Israel is called to be, a kingdom of priests. Now, what do priests do? As they're set apart for a holy duty, a treasured duty, what do priests do? Well, they mediate between God and man. That's what, that's what a priest does. 
is it mediates between God and man. And so here's Israel saying, you Israel, treasured possession, unique place, you're going to be a holy nation of priests, and you're going to mediate the blessing of God to the whole world. You'll be a kingdom of priests to the whole world if you obey my voice and follow my instructions. That's what they're called to, and it all flows from grace. They haven't earned any of it. They don't deserve any of it. God is simply calling them to be used as an instrument of his blessings to the whole world. And they're going to be distinct. They're not going to be like Egypt. They're not going to be like Babylon. They're not going to be like surrounding nations. And so the law of God, this instruction, the ways, is really set up like a a marriage ceremony. And say, let me paint a picture of what our marriage union, our family dynamic will look like. And, and there's so many laws, we're going to speak into every single area of your life. We're going to talk about family issues. We're going to talk about marriage issues. We're going to talk about parenting issues. We're going to talk about financial issues. We're going to talk about social justice issues. We're going to talk about food issues. We're going to talk about neighbor issues. Why? Because you're a kingdom of priests in all areas of your life. And so we're going to speak into all areas of your life. The number that people think of when they think of the law of God, the instructions of God, is 613 commands. You think it's 613 commands for all the areas of life. You think, this sounds like a burden. Man, put it in perspective. No one knows how many federal laws there are in the United States. The prediction is upwards of 50,000 federal laws that you live under. How good does 613 sound right now? (laughs) Man, it sounds freeing. And what we learn is that all of these ways, he's talking about the dignity of life. He's talking about the value of life. You're seeing that all of a sudden the value of women and children and families and the vulnerable, the sojourners and the immigrants, all of a sudden are protected. Unlike Egypt, unlike their surrounding nations, they are totally set apart. And the, the mantra of the family unit from his laws could be this. To experience the fullness of freedom in life, follow this. To experience the fullness of freedom in life, here are my ways. That's what the family is being built into when they enter the promised land. God's ways are for our good. They're for our good. They speak into all the areas of our life for our good, always. In fact, as we go through the laws of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and they're reiterated in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the book written on the the eve of going to the promised land. And and Moses is reminding the people of what the things that God has said, preparing them for this promised land. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. He says, and the Lord commanded us to do all these statues. We're actually supposed to do them. To fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. That all of this is written, this family code of ethics and values, this instructions, Moses says, is for our good, always. God's law that, that comes from grace, that's where it comes from. I brought you out of slavery, and I'm gonna show you what it means to be a child in my family. Reflect who God is, and it's for our good, Always, for our good in all areas of life, for our good in all days of our life, that we follow.
It's ways that life would generally go well for us. That's an amazing thing. See, King David gets this. King David, super rich, okay? Super accomplished. He has accumulated all sorts of fun toys and gadgets. He has it all. Okay, just, just paint the picture. Everything you're striving to be, to obtain, to become, King David has already got it. He has storehouses of wealth you will never know about. And he's the king, which means he gets to set any laws he wants, and they could bend them and use them in his own favor. This king, King David, looks at the laws of God, and you know what he says? It is for our good, always. Here, here's Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testament of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. He looks at God's law and says, this is what God's law does for me. It revives my soul. It makes wise the simple. It, it helps educate people so that they're smarter in life. They, they can understand. It actually enlightens the eyes. So I'm no longer ignorant. It educates me of how the world works, how relationships work, how justice works, he says. This is the law of the Lord. He goes on in verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, and the righteousness altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and dripping of the honeycomb. How many of you guys want a bunch of gold and wealth, stock options? Everyone should be raising their hand. And here David says, I have it. But you know what I pursue that's more desirable than that? Is the ways of the Lord. His instruction. His teachings. His ordinances. In fact, they're not hard to swallow. They're like honey. They're sweet to the taste. I love them. He concludes with this verse, verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them is their great reward. My life is guarded, so I don't make more decisions that bring me more guilt, shame, bondage to addiction and habits. Well, that's good. And even more than that, I'm rewarded by them. Not only does it guard me from things that want to rob my life, but it actually gives me things that makes my life prosperous. I love the laws, the ways, the teachings that God had given to his children. And we as a kingdom have oriented our whole kingdom around his ways. We desire them like gold and all they taste like honey. Is that your attitude towards God's law? Perhaps David knows something that you and I don't. Perhaps he knows something about who God is, the lawgiver, that we don't. Perhaps he's experienced and trusted God in ways that we haven't. To come to this conclusion after acquiring everything that we're in pursuit of, to say, the most valuable thing is God's ways. The most precious thing that tastes so sweet are God's ways. That's the kind of heart that I would long to have in my own life and to see in yours. Brian Hanneman, he's a a leader of navigators on CU Boulder's campus, a campus ministry. They're reaching out to those who either know Christ and being built up as disciples or have yet to know Christ and are going to be one to the faith and built up as disciples. And they were talking about the validity of the scriptures. 
Like, how do you know this book is trustworthy? And the immediate questions are kind of historical accounts, the historical credibilities of actually why this book is the most trustworthy piece of literature in all of antiquity. But before you get to that intellectual question, people really just want to know, can you read the Bible and trust it? And Hanneman made a great statement to the students. He said, I have regrets in my life, but not a single one comes from doing what this book says. Think about that. How do you know you can trust it? You know, I got regrets in my life. You got regrets in yours? Not a single one of mine comes from doing what's in this book. How precious to me are the ways, the teachings, the instructions of God. They're so sweet, like honey. That's what God's gonna be teaching his people. I have brought you out of Egypt. It, it, it comes from grace, and it's for your good, always. And as a holy nation of priests, you will live in such a way that's distinctly different than the Egypt you have known, than the nations that will surround you. It'll be distinctly different. And you know what? It will bring God glory. Like it'll woo people to God when they watch the ways that you live that's so different than the world. Deuteronomy 6 and that passage of getting Israel ready to step into the promised land has this great passage reminding the people of God's laws and why do we have it? Verse five says, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. They're from grace and for your good for that will be your wisdom like, you're going to be the wisest nation. If you do what God leads us to do, you will be wise. It'll be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Like, this nation is wise and they get it. No one lives like they live. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us. Whenever we call upon him, and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so right as all this law that I have set before you today. That's the attitude that Moses is giving the people. It's not, oh, God's law robbing me from the freedom and fullness of life. No, it's just the opposite. Wow, God's gift that brings me the fullness and freedom of life that I'm longing for. And as we live, people notice it's distinctly different. Who is a God like your God? And as we sometimes think, maybe the best way to really win the world to Christ is to accommodate to the culture around us. It's to show them like, man, we're cool, just like you. We think just like you. We watch the same shows. We go to the same places. We talk the same. Isn't it cool we're just like you? Come be one of us. Well, why would we want to do that? We're just the same if we're all cool like you. And this is a quick reminder that God's laws and his ways and his teachings that shape his children that he's freed for our good always make us distinct as wise, knowledgeable, understanding that people will say, Whoa, whoa, who is their God who gives them such wisdom and understanding of how life works? 
Look how they have not train wrecked their life and brought hardship in their marriages and family. Who is their God and what are his ways? I want to know. And here's a question. Do they live perfectly, all these laws? There's an episode in, in chapter 24 where Moses is making this covenant with them. And he says, okay, here's this blood of the, of the ox, and they put it on the altar, and they say, will you do everything that is written in this book? And they say, yes, we will. And then the blood of the covenant comes on the people. It's, a, it's an interesting scene. Do they do everything that's written in the book always? No. You know why? Because they're just like me. Because they're just like me. The law awakens something in them that they don't want to follow. I was in the dentist's office this week, and at the reception's desk, there was a little cat, like a bobblehead cat, and there was a sign that said, do not touch. And you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to throw that thing across the room. No, I just wanted to touch it. I was like, oh, man, it says don't touch. All I want to do is touch. If it didn't say don't touch, I wouldn't care about it. But you make a lot, I'm like, man, I want to break it. (laughs) And the Lord recognizes our problem. It says, it's not about putting the law on your hearts. You need new hearts. And so the prophets tell us of a day coming, of a Messiah that would come, that would give us new hearts. They would take out a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. That it would have new desires to it. Like our appetites would change for what is good and right and pleasing. That we'd want to follow God's ways. We would have the heart like David has. And then Jesus Christ came and brings us this new heart. That Jesus Christ came not to do away with the law and abolish it, but to fulfill it. That Jesus Christ fulfills this law, and he fulfills it perfectly, not only in himself, for all who would believe. That if you would believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, dead and buried, raised to new life, God's perfect life lived in his Son, Jesus Christ, would be accredited to you. And that's the life that you've lived. That's now your track record is the way that Jesus Christ lived and fulfilled the law. And so now we live not under the law of Sinai, but to the law of Christ, the New Testament tells us. That Jesus Christ at Passover takes the cup of Passover and says, this will be a new covenant, a new covenant, established in my blood, my work on the cross, of how you relate to God will be under the law of Christ, Galatians 6, 2 tells us. The law of Christ is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the sweep of the law of Christ. And there are some descriptors of how do you do that? How do you live that out in the New Testament? But that is what we're striving for as his people. But get this, in the new covenant, he has called you and his son, Jesus Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, to belong to him. And then this is what's said of you. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. Check out this language. As I come to you, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. is Jesus Christ. For you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That God's building a household. He's the cornerstone of it. And we are being built up as living stones as a holy priesthood. Verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. The same language that God uses at Sinai of his chosen people, 
He uses of all those who are in Christ. That you are a chosen people and you are priests to live in such a way that is holy and distinct other and put me on display for your good always. He goes on in verse 10. Once you were not a people. We weren't, we weren't, we weren't Jewish, we're Gentiles. You weren't a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's how we enter the kingdom, the family of God, is mercy. And then finally here, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage wars against your soul, and keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, the way you live, and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see the parallels? Sinai, Calvary. Sinai, Calvary, do you find your place in the story yet? You have been saved by grace for a purpose. You are a kingdom of priests. Not as though we have replaced Israel, but the Lord in his mercy has grafted us in through Christ to belong to his family. And we all, we all live as priests, putting God on display that the world would look in and say, whoa, wow. How you live is so different than the other cultures and nations. Who is your God? How has he taught you and led you? And the question for us is just simply this. Which ways, which ways have we been living recently that are incongruent with who we are in Christ? What ways, which ways have we entertained ourselves? Which ways have we, you know, gone which habits have we developed that are incongruent with who we are in Christ as the people of God? A chosen people in Christ, a royal priesthood that the world would see his glory. And then the second question to wrestle with this week is, what's your first step of new obedience? What's your first step? In the, in the area of your life where you see, this is not congruent with who God has called me to be it's more congruent with the cultures and nations around me. No, I'm going I'm to be set apart. What's my first step that you need to take this week towards living a life that honestly reflects who you are in Christ? Those are the two questions I give you this week to wrestle with. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who not only makes yourself known, but in your kindness for our good always makes your ways known. Lord, I thank you that you have given us your good ways in all the areas of our life. And Lord, I pray that you would just increase an appetite amongst all the women and men, families, marriages in this room to pursue your ways like they have been pursuing the almighty dollar this week. Or would they pursue your ways and have an appetite for you as they do for fine, delicious foods? Or would you give us that new heart you've promised? Would you cleanse us from the ways that we have tied it to such lesser things? And Father, we pray that we would live in accordance to the family ethic. And that we would bring your name, fame, to the people that we live next to, to the family that we're in to our friends that we play with. In your name we pray, amen.